Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. My name is Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thank you so much for listening today. Ben, how are you doing? Um, I'm okay. I think I'm like getting over something like a cough. Um, I'm feeling better than a couple days ago. Um, yeah, it's like this like lingering cold you've had. Yeah, it's just like a lot of phlegm in my throat and a bad cough and a sore throat. Um, But I think I'm getting better. You, on the other hand, are getting worse. Pretty sure I have strep throat. Okay. Yeah. Um, I had strep throat a lot growing up as a kid, and this feels exactly like that. And I have the telltale spots on the back of your throat and and all that jazz. So uh, also both of us have been testing negative for COVID this entire time. Mm -hmm. So. You know, it it's whatever. We're tired. Yeah. Um. Uh. Not this episode, but the next regular episode, we will be officially homeowners. So that oh. we, we're you're very tired because of this. Yeah, it's just like a lot. There's just a lot. The world is a lot. The um, world is a lot. The world has been a lot. Um. We've been tired and sick, and the world is a lot, and we've been busy with our jobs and. We've been running behind on everything lately, and it's just, it's a lot. And then we're going to be homeowners, and it'll be even more. Even more lot. Yes. But you bring up a good point, and I just want to take a moment to say that we here at Castle Scream Scene are very upset with the Supreme Court of America. Yeah, fuck the Supreme Court. And uh, not only do we believe that people should have bodily autonomy over whether they become pregnant or not mm-hmm. and what to do about that pregnancy. But also people have the right to privacy because yes. that is the underlining thing of Roe v. Wade. Yes. And this opens up a whole can of worms about miscegenation laws and uh, same-sex marriage. Uh, same-sex marriage, uh, same like sex for the purpose of... Pleasure. Uh, pleasure. Yeah, just... Tons of stuff because um, very explicitly the Roe v. Wade decision called out that it was like, we should probably strike down all those other due process uh, decisions too. So that's all coming. Um, Yeah, thanks to a court which features three people put in it by a traitor criminal. Um, So yeah, Supreme Court's garbage. uh, And if you are currently fighting for like abortion rights in the U.S., we support you. We support everyone uh, doing the hard work down there. With that announcement out of the way, uh, another announcement. Thank you, Nick Harold, uh, for suggesting today's movie. Uh, what are we watching today, Ben? Today, Sarah, we are watching The Dundishan, or The Lake of the Dead, from 1958, directed by Corey Bergstrom. And uh, yeah, I a big thank you to Nick, um, longtime listener, always sending the good emails. I just like hadn't heard of this movie. It had slipped my mind. Um, well, okay, it's actually not true that I hadn't heard of it. I had forgotten that I had heard of this movie. <laughs> um, and it slipped my mind and it wasn't on the agenda. And um, Nick actually pointed it out basically just in time. So we're, we're actually watching it in the chronologically correct 
spot still um, because I called out in our last regular episode that we were done 1958 uh, unless someone could point out a movie we'd missed. And Nick did because he just sort of expected that this was going to be the next regular episode. Nick was like, um, actually, guys, yeah, you uh, fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> and we were like, oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. So we looked into this movie and it turns out this movie should be pretty dope based on everything I've learned about it. Yes, same. Um, I think it's going to be a really good watch, even if it happens to end up on the miscellaneous list. It, I don't think it's going to. You don't think it's going no. to? Well, so part of the reason why I'm not sure is because I couldn't find a full synopsis of the novel right. that it's based on. Which, yeah, good point. Uh, it's based on a book. Yeah, so because I don't know what the book is, but everything kind of points to it being like that kind of murder mystery style of a novel, mm-hmm. um, I can't say whether this will or will not for sure be a horror. Yeah, when Nick asked us about it, he supposed that maybe we were skipping it because it's more of a Scooby-Doo mystery story. But he said that like the film is more horror than the book is and that we should really check it out. Um, but the actual reason was, yeah, I just just plum didn't notice it. Uh, so thank you again to Nick. And yeah, what can you tell me about the novel, Sarah? Well, Ben, strap in. Okay. Um, so the novel was written by Norwegian writer Jarl Andre Björke who was born in 1918 to some very lovely parents, uh, a stay-at-home mom, and his father uh, was another famous novelist. His name is Eyot Björke, and he was a novelist, a playwright, just really into the written language. Got it. Um, Which written language? Yes. Um, so Andre, by the time that he was born, his father had published several novels and essay collections and language and writing was of particular importance to the household. So this encouraged Andre to write himself and his debut collection would be a collection of poems in 1940 titled Singyenge Yed, translated as Singing Earth, which he published when he was 22. Good for him. Yes. So alongside his, what I'll say, serious writings, like these are the works I'm going to put my name onto, Hmm. he also used a pen name for more mystery stories. And this pen name is Benyad Bogier. And this first mystery novel that he published under that name and in general uh, was 1941's Natmenske, translated as The Nightman. Okay. And in this very first mystery novel, he introduced a character who he would have return time and again in future mystery novels, uh, a psychoanalyst by the name of Kai Bugwe. Now, this character was used to kind of point out that for Bjorke, a psychologist is more likely to be able to solve a crime than a policeman. So in this particular novel, Natmenske, he was paired with a police officer named Hammer, and all but one of Bjorke's mystery novels features Kai. Okay. Um, and that includes this novel, Dodis Sean, uh, which he published in 1942 at 24 years old. Wow. <laughs> and in this novel, Bugwe, a policeman named Harold Gran, Gran's fiancé, the literary critic... 
Gabriel Merck and author <laughs> Bernard Bourguet. Got it. The, um, the writer of the book. Yes. And Bourguet's wife go to a cabin in the woods. And they find the Necronomicon. <laughs> not quite. It's not quite Evil Dead. So this cabin in the woods is apparently the site where um, someone that they know committed suicide. Mm. This lake as well has kind of a, a legend or perhaps curse to it of um, many, many years ago, a man was up there with his family and he went crazy and killed his family and then killed himself. Right. It's The Shining. <laughs> so their friend who um, supposedly committed suicide, they find his diary and they see, you know, how he thinks he's going insane. Um, and so it becomes kind of a, a mystery to solve about what actually happened to their friend, as well as kind of these talking heads between the psychoanalyst, literary critic, and the policeman. I don't know how it resolves. So that's all I know. Got it. Um, every synopsis I read ended with the line, and the mysteries of the lake proved to influence these characters as well. As if there's like something, sure. like an aura around the right. house or something. Yeah. So it's it's very, like, I don't know how this mystery gets resolved. But those are the people who are going to this cabin. Now, Bjorke continued publishing mystery throughout the 40s. And like I said, all but one feature, Bugie. And then 1950 hit. And Bjorke became very focused on producing a magazine called Ura, um, which translates to The Word. Okay. And at this point, I am going to take a quick transition into asking you, what do you know about the Norwegian language conflict, Ben? Well, um, all of the Scandinavian countries, uh, which uh, for the purposes of this discussion, we will call Denmark, Norway, and Sweden, have a very like heavily intertwined history where I'm going to go out on a limb and say like, one of at least one of them has been dominant over the other two at least once over like the course of hundreds <laughs> of years yeah like um and so because of that like there's been periods where like norway was like under danish rule and like sweden's had their turn at the top and that kind of thing and so if i'm remembering correctly the deal was that like in the 19th century norway was under danish rule and so, like, Danish was the official language. And so when the 20th century came about and Norway was, like, independent, it was like, cool, well, we all speak Norwegian, but we all speak, like, our own weird at-home, don't-let-the-Danes-hear-you-say-it version of Norwegian. And we don't have a way of writing Norwegian because we were all taught to write Danish. So what the fuck do we do now? And then people got mad at each other. I mean, that's a pretty good nutshell. Here's um, a bit of a longer, but still a short version. <laughs> As you said, Norway was part of the Danish Empire until 1814. And it was at this point when, you know, Norway became independent, that Danish was the written language and a Dano-Norwegian hybrid was um, the, the spoken language. Got it. Keep in mind, though, that that is the case for probably about 1% of the population. The aristocrats. Right. The people who are literate. So as Norway is trying to figure its identity out, mm. and it really wants to do this because it has like this um, 
relationship with Sweden. And so they're like, well, we don't want to become Swiss. Right. So we really got to figure out what makes us Norwegian. Yeah. In like the early 1840s, people started paying attention to rural areas and folk speech, how the common people spoke. Yeah. Okay. This, this makes sense as like an academic movement. Like you're trying to find like the true Norway. So you go to the, the Volk. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But across Norway, uh, everyone has their own dialects, their own accent, uh, idiosyncrasies to their language, different names. Nothing is standardized. And funny enough, uh, a lot of that stuff isn't easily translatable across each other. So a lot of people can't understand what like Joe down the street is saying. Huh. Okay. yeah, I can see that. It's always worth reminding people that like the official versions of languages often, you know, either come about through like weird consensus over time, like English, or like they're regulated to some extent, like Italian or French. But regardless, generally like a dialect like gets picked and wins. Yeah. Um, Like for Italian, that's the like Florence dialect and for... Uh, French, it's like the Parisian dialect, etc. So this it, it's called the Norwegian language conflict, which I think is like a strange like title for this because it's everyone just disagreeing about which dialect to use all along the spectrum of are we going to be more Danish or more colloquial? And Danish being like formal. Yeah, you know? yeah. Which which like if you know the history of like Romance languages is very much the like how much Latin should be in our language kind of discussion. So um, there were attempts in like 1885 to have a written language standardized, but no one, especially with the spoken, no one is playing nice together and no one wants to be integrated or like integrated as in like hybrid languages, that sort of thing. So in 1885, there were attempts to have kind of a standardization of the written language and that became known as Bakmal, which is a pretty good hybrid of Norwegian and Danish. Book talk. Book talk, exactly. Bakmal, book talk. Yeah. yeah. But especially when it comes to spoken language, but even still in the written language, no one is really happy with this decision. No one's wanting to play nicely together. So um, there was this unofficial movement called Riksmal, uh, which is like nation language is kind of how that translates to that uh the word that kept coming up is that Riksmal is more conservative than bookmall which is a fancy way of saying we want it to be more formal and danish maybe not necessarily danish but like formal because we want it to be tied to the elites sure yeah yeah okay Within the Riksmal movement, do you have even a spectrum within uh, where one is more conservative of, you know, formal language and the other is uh, called radical, which would be to reflect the common people. So even within this one movement, everyone's pretty upset with each other. Now, these conversations are happening all throughout right up until like 1930s. um, And they're still trying to figure this out. But then World War Two. So this conversation got put on hold. Post-World this War... This conversation where no one could understand each other. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, um, yes. And no one could agree with each other. Post-World War II, so Norway was um, taken over by the Nazis and then also the Russians to simplify that whole thing. Sure. Uh, and so post-World War II, it became even more important to people to figure out what makes us Norwegian. 
I feel like what makes us Norwegian, like the answer to that question is probably similar to like the like, what what does it mean to be Canadian? Where like it's we're not American, and for the Norwegians, it's like we're not Swedish or Danish. Yeah, yeah. The, having a cultural identity and language is like kind of key to figuring out that identity, and so the government was like, cool. Then we are merging the formal and colloquial dialects into this new thing, and no one liked it. Of course. <laughs> Andre Bjorke, for his part, was involved in the Riksmal movement and particularly the conservative, traditional, standard Norwegian type of movement. Um, and in 1950, as part of the Riksmal Society, he published a quarterly magazine called Ura, whose uh, subtitle was Journal of Free Language Development. Got it. So we want to be free to develop our own language. This traditional version. Right, Rick Small, yeah. And so uh, I could find no real confirmation about this, but I think it's a pretty easy leap to guess that Dodotas Shion, um, the Lake of the Dead, uh, was published in Rick Small. Um, so I bring all of this up because from what I can tell about the book, there is a interesting dichotomy between urban and rural mm. um, and like elites and common people and that kind of divide being underlined with these elites coming to a country cabin where there's this haunting and something supernatural unexplained. Yeah, this is one of those things that like unless the subtitler figures out a way to do it. It's just not going to come across when you're a foreigner watching a movie because you're just going to hear them talk and it's just Norwegian. Like, yeah, like there's no like I couldn't find anyone saying like what type of Norwegian this was. Chinese is like a similar thing. Um, you're lucky someone will be specific like, oh, this is Mandarin versus this is Cantonese. You usually find that if there's two different language tracks on a Chinese DVD. But like if it's a movie that just is like English or Chinese, they'll just call it Chinese. And you're like, but which Chinese? Yeah. Or you see it with Indian, for example. And there are like a ton of languages in India. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, from a foreign perspective, you just hear the foreign language. And so one of the things that you don't get, like whether it's in a Japanese film or a Chinese film or an Indian film is like if someone switches from like, say, a formal register to a colloquial register or from like an elite's language to a rural language, like you just don't hear it. You know, the only thing I can think of off the top of my head is like there's a sort of informal convention in anime dubbing where if like a character in an anime has an Osaka accent they tend to be given like a brooklyn accent in the dub (laughs) um to get across like the same because like the stereotype of brooklyn people i guess is like similar to the stereotype of people from osaka but yeah like it's really hard to get stuff like that across especially in subtitles so yeah i assume that all of that's gonna fly right over our heads if there's any like linguistic subtext going on yeah but I wanted to call attention that there could be something going on here. Right. Norwegian um, listeners, like, tell us what's up, please. <laughs> you can contact us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com. Um, the last thing I want to mention about Bjorke before we talk about the film is that he was very pro-supernatural and spiritualism. Got it. Specifically, anthroposophy. I've never heard of that. Well, 
has its roots in uh, German idealism and uh, some white supremacist pseudoscience. So, Got it. Okay. Um, but its basic idea is that, you know, there is an existing spiritual world and we can access it through our senses by being aware of things and noticing things. We can see this objective world. Okay. Um, and it's just existing around us. Okay. Um, and the way that we can access it is by examining through a scientific method, our imagination, where our inspiration comes from and our intuition. Okay. The part that's kind of tied to white supremacist pseudoscience is because, you know, everyone has kind of a, an evolutionary stage of civilizations and people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so white people are more likely to uh, have souls that become spirits that are reincarnated and experience their past life before being reborn. Well, that's that's nonsense. I mean, like all of that's nonsense, <laughs> but like the last part especially is nonsense like i can kind of follow you on the like oh yeah you know like your gut instincts or like the like flashes of inspiration that you get or like your dreams like where do you think those come from well they actually come from spirits um i can like follow that that's i don't believe in that but i can follow that but then the idea that like and white people have more spirit than anyone else because reasons. Because we are quote unquote civilized is kind of the idea. Yeah, you know? I just don't see, to be honest, <laughs> I don't see the correlation between civilized and like more spirits. Because like the <laughs> rationality there should be that like if these spirits are where creativity and like inspiration come from um, and like gut instinct, then like the civilization with the most spirits should be the one that's like the most creative and like goes off its guts. Uh, But you see, we can access the spiritual world through the scientific method. So it's using that analytical part of your, your brain and stuff, not just like, yeah spirituality i guess so, uh, I, yeah i i don't believe it's, with it's this nonsense it it's, is what i'm trying to say is it's nonsense because like definitely there are other civilizations other than white civilization that has creativity and even if you want to make the argument that like well whites have scientific methods so we know it's there it's like that doesn't mean you have the most of it just means you can measure <laughs> that you have the least of it i sure it's it's all nonsense yeah. okay he got really into this though yeah for sure so where is Björke now? Now, like uh, after the fifties, after okay. the language conflict, because like the um, oh yeah, how did the language conflict resolve? <laughs> well, it came to a head in nineteen fifty nine. It had been building throughout against the quote unquote radical bookmal, uh-huh. uh, radical as in too colloquial, right? Um, and so ultimately, uh, people pushed and got a blended formal colloquial written version of the language um, to be used in textbooks. And uh, it kind of was like, cool, we can all go home now. (laughs) That kind of resolved it. Um, Best as I can tell, uh, at least for today, the closest analogy of this, you know, conflict of Norwegian dialects would be analogous to like the American or British spelling of English. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I feel like the thing that has standardized language the most of anything in history has not been like academic attempts to be like, 
here's the book that tells you how to speak and write. It's been like mass globalization of communication. Like it's flattened out accents where like all of the like very distinct regional accents of the United States are like starting to slowly disappear over time because they all watch the same movies and TV where Mm -hmm. everyone talks the same. Right. And like that sort of flattens out dialect and everything else because we're all hearing each other talk. The internet creates its own dialect and we're all talking like how we talk online now. And so I feel like, Oh really? Yeah. Uh, the look Ben just gave me. <laughs> uh, but, you know, whereas, like, I can understand why there were all these tiny little regional dialects in Norway. Because, like, yeah, if you were like, hey, do you want to go to the next town over and talk to those guys? I'd be like, it's cold outside. No. <laughs> so I, I get why everything became very, very, like, you know, isolated in these little silos of language. So after you know, this language conflict kind of fizzled out. Um, Bjorke returned to publishing novels, but Dodo's Schön remains his most popular and well-received. Oh, interesting. After this film, um, in 1963, he began publishing work under his own name and began collaborating in television in 1970, particularly with the host Harold Tilsberg. And they co-hosted a show together in 1973 called NRK Strafjog Grensland. It's the first show dedicated to investigating paranormal phenomena. Got So they were ghost hunters. They were BuzzFeed Unsolved on Norwegian TV in the 70s. The first ever. Huh. The first ever, which is dope. Um, in 1981, uh, he unfortunately had a debilitating stroke. Two years later, he was knighted into the Order of St. Olav. And um, he passed away in 1985 at age 66. Okay. To be reincarnated as a spirit, you know? Right. So the film version of Didoda Shun um, is written, directed, and narrated by Corey Bergström. Okay. And Bergström was born in Varmland in Sweden in 1911. But he moved to Norway and began working with Norsk Film in 1933, becoming a cinematographer. As you might expect, Norsk Film was the government-funded film production company in Norway from 1932 to 2001 when it was disestablished. What happened in 2001? Um, I would presume that probably a party of government that didn't think that the government should be spending money on the arts came to power and defunded it. Okay. During that period, uh, from 1932 to 2001, it was responsible for 25% of all Norwegian films produced. Wow. Yeah. One of the films that Bergström shot for Norsk Film was To Misten Clear Peschner in 1950, which was based on a 1933 novel by Gunnar Larsson. The novel itself was loosely based on a real incident in 1926 involving two sheriffs who were murdered by two bank robbers and the resulting manhunt for them. During the making of the movie, one of the two criminals sued to have filming halted on the basis of violation of privacy. Oh my god. The case went to the Supreme Court 
of Norway, which ruled in the criminal's favor and banned the film from being publicly shown, which resulted in a huge financial loss to Norsk Film. The case was unique in European law and established an important precedent in Norwegian law that right to privacy was higher than right to freedom of expression. Yeah. The film did not become available for Cinematheque screenings until 1998 and was not publicly released until 2007 after all the people involved in the story had died. Do you know what the reception was like? I I just know that it's like infamous for being this like court case. I don't actually know if it's a good movie or not. Sure. But Bergstrom's first film as a director was Andrine Ochel, um, a romantic drama. Um, and Dedudis Schoen would be his fourth feature film. Okay. So, confusingly, Andre Bjerka appears in the movie, like he acts in the movie. Oh. He's in the cast, but he does not play the character of Bernard Borge, which is, as you pointed out, his pen name and author insert character. <laughs> so, he is a character in the movie but he does not play himself. Instead, Bjerka plays the character of Gabriel Merck, the literary critic. (laughs) So he gets to like yell at himself as the (laughs) critic. And the role of Berge is played by actor Henki Kolsta, who was born in 1915, passed away in 2008, and was considered a national treasure as an actor, uh, and was like knighted to that order of St. Olaf and all that kind of stuff. Wow. Major big deal actor. The role of Berge's wife, Sonja, is played by actress Björg Eng. Meanwhile, the actress playing the character of Lian Varner is Henny Moen, who would go on to marry yeah. Andre Bierka. I did know that. I was uh, going to bring it up now, but you, you got me. Yeah, so like, Bierke is a character in the movie. <laughs> His wife is a character in the movie. Neither of them are playing themselves. They are both in the movie playing other characters. So that's not confusing at all. Well, to be fair, they got married after the movie, you true, know? True, true. Henny Moan was born in Finnmark, in 1936, Finnmark is the most northerly part of Norway, I think. Okay. Um, so it's it's North Norway. And she left there at age 17, where she worked at a gas station, without telling anyone. Like, from what I understand, she just, like, she was a 17-year-old working at a gas station. And one day she was like, nuts to this. And just, like, left work and, like, <laughs> wandered out into the cold and uh, moved to Oslo where she attended drama school. She was just like, I'm going to be an actress. Uh, She became very well known because of her short blonde hairstyle, like this close cropped hairstyle, which was very unusual in Norway at the time. Like women still all wore their hair long. She was constantly like asked about it in interviews. Like, what does it mean? And like, why do you do that? And uh, her customary answer was just, she got used to it as a child because they used to cut her hair short because they were worried about lice or something. Mm. But it's like, Oh, the 1950s, the era when like, why is your hair short is a valid interview question for a woman. That is brought up repeatedly. Yeah. In 1957, she appeared in Knee Leave, 
or Nine Lives, uh, which was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film and is widely considered the greatest Norwegian film ever made. Oh. Meeting Bjarke on the set of this film, the two were married in 1959, and they stayed together until 1972 when their daughter was 12. And then I believe in 2002, their daughter wrote a book about them. Mm -hmm. Moan continued acting until her retirement in 2007, and today she is 86 years old. Oh, she's still living. Yes. So upon this film's release on December 17th, 1958, it received rave reviews from critics. It was also a huge hit at the box office and was a major milestone for domestic cinema in Norway, because like a lot of, you know, small national cinemas in Europe, the theaters were usually like dominated by foreign product, right? Like Hollywood Mm. or whatever. Um, And this was like a huge domestic hit. It also was a turning point in Bergstrom's career he went on to you know do big prestige films after this the score from gunnar sunstivold and the cinematography from ragnar surinson also were singled out for praise both of those guys worked on knee leave mm. the greatest norwegian film ever made so this is pretty much like the greatest norwegian film ever made's younger brother right younger <laughs> horror brother um, and so today, De Dudes Schön is considered one of the greatest Norwegian movies of all time. I think in a, like, poll of film critics, like, where Nileve ranked first, it ranked fourth. Oh, wow. Um, it is currently available to stream on Tubi uh, with ads. Or if you don't want ads, it's available to stream in HD on Shudder. And you can get it as a restored Blu-ray in Severin Films all the Haunts Be Ours, a Compendium of Folk Horror, a Blu-ray collection. Uh, you remember when that came out a little while ago? It was a huge deal. No, I don't remember, but it sounds dope. Oh, yeah. All the Haunts Be Ours is like a $200 Blu-ray box set of like folk horror from around the world. Like there's Russian films and Czech films and Canadian films and U.S. films and British films. And there's a four hour documentary about the genre of folk horror on like disc one. That was like a very famous big deal documentary. And like, it's the lead feature in the set. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's a, it's, it was a big deal. I don't know. Benito and I talked about it all the time. <laughs> yeah. It sounds but, sort of um, Benito's alley. But yeah, like, so this is why I say I forgot I had heard about this movie because this movie's in the set and I knew about the set, but forgot about this movie so yeah uh this movie's kind of a big deal cool well i am super stoked if you would like to watch along creatures of the night you can head on over to tubi or find a copy another way you're going to hear a brief musical interlude and when we come back we will discuss the daughter's sean from 1958 directed by kiare bergstrom see you on the other side everybody Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching De Dödeschen, or Lake of the Dead, from 1958, directed by Corey Bergström. Sarah, what did you think? This was really good. 
Yeah. I really enjoyed this. This was great. Yeah. What so do we... thank you, Nick. This, oh, what a treat. What do we even do when a movie is good? I feel like I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> Enjoy it? Yeah. Relish it? Yeah, absolutely. This was fantastic. Uh, so Sarah, why don't you walk us through the beats of the plot? Absolutely. So we do have a framing narrative of Bernard Bourguier uh, reading over a story that he's just written to his wife, Sonia. And he, he he's kind of joking, like, do you think I need to say that, like, I'm not insane in the foreword before this story? Um, but he reads over it to, like, you know, proof edit. And then we fade in to see six friends heading on the train to a cabin in the woods. Uh, here we see Bourguet and his wife, Sonia, the psychoanalyst, Kai Bouguet, the literary critic, Gabriel Merck, um, the lawyer, Harold Gran, and his fiancée, Lillian. And I say lawyer like that because uh, I believe in the novel he is actually a cop, but here they have him as a lawyer. Though that might be a misreading on the translations of synopses I saw online. Sure. So they are heading to a cabin in the woods because, you know, they're going for a weekend away, but also... This cabin is owned by Lillian's brother, Bjorn, and he is there training his dog, Spot. And Lillian's really worried about Bjorn because, you know, he hasn't been answering her letters. And they're twins. And using their twin sense, uh, she can tell that, like, something's gone a little off. Um, so she's pretty anxious to get there. And when they get to the cabin, they discover that Bjorn has disappeared. Um, the person who got them up to the cabin is the local constable and um after they have dinner the constable says like you know don't worry like i think your brother's just out hunting um but did you ever hear about the legend of this cabin uh and so he explains that long ago this cabin belonged to tori gruvik who is a guy who was in love with his sister now tori some notes about him. He uh, only has one leg and then the other leg is like a peg leg, um, pirate style. And Tori was, um, yeah, pretty obsessed with his sister. So when she elopes with a local uh, farmhand, he kills her and her husband. And then um, a couple days later, ends up actually committing suicide by going to the bottomless lake. Rumored to be bottomless lake nearby i think he dumped their bodies in the lake too right yes yeah um because he so he to dispose of the bodies he takes them to this bottomless lake that uh apparently has like a pretty strong undertow and then three days later he ends up committing suicide by going in himself now part of this legend is that tori is said to still haunt the woods around the lake um you can tell that you know he has these footprints around because he has like the one regular leg and then the one pig leg. And the way that he haunts is also by possessing people who stay at the cabin. Now it's like midnight, but they're like, well, let's go see this lake for some spooks and scares. Um, Sonia in particular also really likes to go swimming and she seems to be a pretty strong swimmer. I really like the interplay between Sonia and Bernard because like, Sonia's very, like, adventurous and, like, 
you know, just wants to have fun and like do whatever and very kind of like has this very like carefree attitude about things. And Bernard is like extremely neurotic and like kind of cowardly, a little bit clumsy, like doesn't like to rush into new things. And he's the writer and she's like clearly the writer's long suffering wife without whom he could never get anything done. And uh, I just liked that in this movie. Yeah, they had some good, um, I'll call them comedic elements. There's no moments where you're, it's like comedy and you're like laughing along at like a joke or I something. Just, I believed them as a married couple. They had like good banter, good interplay. They, they read as a married couple really believably. Now, as they are wandering around the lake, they find Bjorn's dog, Spot, uh, shot in the head by his shotgun, which they also find nearby. And then in the moss, they can see footprints of Bjorn walking and going into the lake, but not coming out. And so they're really worried. Uh, The constable is like, okay, well, in the morning, we'll search the bottom of the lake um, to try to find his body. So he's presumed dead. But uh, our male characters here do begin to have some like armchair theories about what could have happened. Um, Was it suicide? Was it murder? Uh, Which is actually Harold's theory. That discussion of theories gets further involved when Bugwe discovers Bjorn's diary um, in the cabin and it kind of describes Bjorn going mad and believing that he's uh, being possessed by Tori and uh, having the lake call to him. Further in this mystery is um, it, I think it's pretty obvious, uh, Bugwe is treating Lillian as like her psychologist and analyzing her dreams with her. Um, but it is played as like a mystery of like, why do they keep going off and talking amongst themselves all alone with privacy? Yeah. Is, is that guy having an affair with her? The psychologist? It, yeah, you're it's, totally right. It's, it's very, clear. it's really obvious that he's her, that she's his patient. And I think like, our narrator Bernard here is just like meant to be a little bit dense. Absolutely dense. As I mentioned, Harold Gran um, believes that it's murder. And one night um, he kind of like sneaks out of the house and goes to investigate near the lake. Bouguet and... Let's say Kai and Bernard because their last names are like a little bit hard to discern, right? It's it's Bouguet and Bouguet. And cool. So Bernard and Kai. Kai. Yeah, let's do it that um, way. <laughs> see that uh, Harold has left. And so they go to follow and they hear Harold like end up falling into the lake. Like he gives a yell and falls and he drowns. So, OK, we have another murder. Um, by the way, they couldn't they, they did look at the bottom of the lake. They could not find Bjorn's body. Yeah, which apparently is, like, normal. Like, that's why they think the lake is bottomless is because, like... Or that's why it's said in the legend the lake is bottomless because people drown in the lake, but their bodies are never found. Mm -hmm. They find Harold's body because it's, like, right there. (laughs) Yeah, and it's established he can't swim. That's right. But afterwards, Kai has a plan. But crucially, he does not tell the plan to Bernard. When this plan is implemented, it's the following night, and it also happens to be the, like, rumored anniversary of when Torrey 
committed suicide. So they go out to the lake and Bernard is with Kai um, and Kai's like, hey, be quiet. Just watch. Just let things play. I have a plan. And they see Lillian in her universal standard white gown in a hypnotic trance, um, as has been kind of her way throughout this whole movie, walking and going into the lake. Yeah, there was an earlier incident where she like slept, walked and almost went into the lake and Bernard saved her. So it's been established that like her dreams have been calling her to dive into the lake. After Lillian goes into the water, Bjorn appears uh, looking really like he has not slept (laughs) for at least a week. Like he is looking really rough. Um, So Kai and Bernard chase him, um, but they can't catch up with him. And Bjorn goes into the water and drowns himself. So they head back to the cabin and Bernard's like, what is going on? Like, is Lillian okay? Like, what is happening? And once they get to the cabin, he realizes Lillian's actually been asleep this whole time. It was Sonia who went into the lake pretending to be Lillian. She's fine. She's here drying off. And Kai explains that in a way, Bjorn was possessed by Tori in the sense that he too himself was in love with Lillian and identified so clearly with Tori that he was like, okay, I'm going to, using my twin telepathic link, call Lillian here, have her bring Harold, kill Harold, and, you know, possibly end up killing Lillian and then kill myself. Part of why Kai was able to put all this together is because Lillian's dreams and hypnosis sessions, he was able to access both her and Bjorn's dreams because of this twin telepathic link. And that is how the film ends. There is kind of a a little bit at the end where it's, you know, brought up like, was it supernatural? Because Bernard finds um, the feather of a crow, which was symbolic in the Tory legend. Um, But yeah, that's the end. Yeah. So through the whole movie, there's this kind of discussion of like, was Bjorn's death a murder, which was Harold's theory? Did he go mad? Like, was it psychological, which is Kai's theory? Or was he literally, like, possessed by the ghost and it's supernatural, which is Gabriel Merck's theory? And so the movie has a lot of, like, discussions throughout it of these, like, three competing viewpoints. Um, and so it's it's Merck at the end who's like, well, who's to say he wasn't actually possessed kind of thing? And I bring that up because the author of the book, Bjerke, plays Merck. Yeah. And so it's it gives some like credence. Weight, yeah, to Merck's point of view. Yeah, otherwise Merck is there to voice the but what if he actually was possessed kind of thing throughout the whole movie, but he doesn't have like a big role in the plot. Um, yeah, he they, does have a lot of fun scenes where he's like in the background, kind of like smoking his pipe and looking broody. Yeah. So he does a good job in the role. And he gets to like needle um, Bernard because he's the critic and Bernard's the writer. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, the only like plot significant thing is that when they find Harold's body, they need to like take it back into town. And the constable's like, I don't have enough people to carry this body so Merc goes with him which means that Merc's not there to help capture Bjorn um, which is why like Bjorn gets away and drowns himself because the plan was to to capture him but uh, yeah so I think we can start with some obvious things about this movie 
beautiful cinematography. Very, very creepy, very atmospheric. Wonderful score. Yeah, the music and cinematography are rightfully praised. Um, There's that iconic shot of her just going face down into the water. Like the way she goes into the water when it's Sonya pretending to be Lillian, it's not like she dives in. It's she like walks up. There's this like path that comes out of the trees and up to the lake. And then it's like a straight drop into the lake uh, from the end of that path because she just sort of keeps walking. And when she gets to the end of the path, she just like 90 degrees without breaking stride, boosh, face down into the water, which is um, a very iconic shot. Mm -hmm. Um, The pacing was really good. Uh, As we said, we have like these three characters voicing their point of view throughout the whole thing. Uh, and none of it feels repetitive. Mm-hmm. None of it is like, yep, Merc thinks it's possession. Kai thinks it's psychological. Yeah, it doesn't feel like we're biding time. No. Um, it feels like things are moving forward and evolving. Um, the editing in this movie is really fantastic. I mean, you're talking about pacing, you're talking about ambience and mood, and editing is such an important part of establishing a mood and, you know, the movie has just this, like, wonderfully creepy atmosphere. And part of that is established through, like, these shots of just, like, carefully composed stillness in nature that are, like, interposed with the action, mm-hmm. often just being, like, still shots of the lake itself. Yeah, because this lake has a completely glassy surface. Yeah. Hardly anything disturbs it. So when something does disturb it, it's like, oh, what what was that? Mm-hmm. And actually, Ben, I wanted to ask you, was this like a special lens or something? Because it felt particularly wide, widescreen. Oh, this was um, shot in scope. So this is an anamorphic lens. Okay. Um, so yeah, this film was shot in cinemascope. I forget what... Because Cinemascope's a trademark of 20th Century Fox at the time. I think so they I for- said Aga? Yeah, it's like Aga or Amol Scope or something like that. It's So they have their off-brand you know, version. But yeah, this is um, an anamorphic lens uh, for a Cinemascope uh, 2.35 to 1 aspect ratio, um, which... Uh, really gives a mood. Yes, and um, is also something you can always telltale sign of an anamorphic lens um, rather than say like a flat lens that's been cropped to a wider aspect ratio is when you see them like pan right to left, there'll be some distortion because the lens is curved. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, uh, definitely like a very carefully composed mood to this movie. I do wonder how hard it was to find a lake where there's a strip of land that you can just like emerge out of the trees in this perfect framing and then just drop into the water where it's not like a gradual decline. Um, And I I actually wonder if they did anything to kind of like move the earth around to create that condition. Well, it doesn't look like they did. No. Uh, So they might've just like moved the debris around, you know? Yeah. It's just like, that's very good Mm -hmm. location scouting. And all of this is on location, uh, which really enhances all of the movie. Yeah, it does mean that like they kind of are very clearly shooting in broad daylight and having to be like, wow, the moon is full and bright tonight. Um, there was some like the way that they talked about that though felt very tongue in cheek. Like yeah. they were like kind of 
over lampshading to kind of make it a joke. Yeah, because, um, you know, we're still in a period where if you're out in the middle of nowhere on location, like, you can't really shoot at night. Yeah, uh, we, we kind of spoke to the pacing. I think the structure of the movie overall is done really well. The way that it has, like, when certain spooky things occur, mm-hmm. there's this really awesome uh, thunderstorm yeah. that happens. Um, and that's when, like, uh, Bernard goes into his room to like shut the window and there's like just as a a flash of lightning hits he sees someone in the room and the water droplets are showing that it it must have been Tor because he had the peg leg footprint um yeah just like enough spooky things happening but not so clumped together that you're like well why haven't they left yet yeah yeah that's a very good point you you feel like it's it's just enough mm-hmm. and yeah the spooks are really well done that one like shot where it's just like a frame's worth of the light hitting bjorn in the dark in the room and then like that's it was very well done the thunderstorm is is really really well done especially after like movie after movie after movie of like hollywood thunderstorms there was something really special about one that was like differently paced that had like you know flash of light and then the thunder yeah so that's what makes this different because they held on to the tension Mm -hmm. of how thunderstorms work yeah rather than just being like yeah it's a thunderstorm rain wind whoa yeah yeah which i mean i love don't get me wrong but it was just really powerful yeah great sound design in the movie yes i was going to be calling that out specifically the way that they have that stillness throughout the sound design um to the point where like at one point you hear like a frog jump into the lake um it really does a great job of feeling like it envelops you Mm -hmm. and i think that paired to the extra wide lens uh it does such a good job what's really interesting is to see how this movie kind of forms like the stepping stone between the a bunch of adults find themselves at a mansion where a murder happens movies of the early 20th century and the a bunch of friends find themselves at a cabin in the woods where horror happens movies of the late 20th century you know what i mean yeah like we are like halfway between the bat and evil dead with this movie (laughs) i would completely agree which brings me to a discussion point. Okay. Is this horror? So this is clearly a psychological movie, yes. obviously. But I wouldn't say it's a psychological thriller. Oh, I, I would. Like, I would say this is a textbook psychological thriller. Well, for me, I was never on the edge of my seat being thrilled, hmm. but rather was enveloped by spooky chills. Yeah, the atmosphere. Yeah, for sure. I think I'm not sure like what the timeline on episodes coming out is going to be, but like this episode is going to come out in very close proximity to our June horror adjacent bonus episode, which is on Hammer's Hound of the Baskervilles adaptation from 1959. And it is wild to watch this movie in close proximity to that one. Mm -hmm. Um, Because so both movies have a central character who goes into the countryside to confront a mystery with a seemingly supernatural explanation, uh, which he goes on to prove has an empirical 
solution, and he is accompanied by his friend, who is also the author of the book that the (laughs) movie is based on. Not to mention the parallelism of both authors um, having these like highly rational protagonists and both authors themselves, in fact, being supporters of spiritualism quackery. (laughs) And like Sherlock Holmes even gets brought up in the movie a few times when people are like making fun of other people for trying to like piece together the mystery. There's the fact that, you know, Birka plays Merck, the spiritualism supporting character And seeing the movie, I can see why he doesn't play his pen name author insert character, uh, uh, Berge, um, because he's as much of a fictional construct as Watson is. He's a character in the story who's clearly very different from how Birke himself was. Um, You know, he's cowardly, he's clumsy, but he's heroic you know, he saves Lillian. He's basically just like an everyman who the smarter characters can explain things to. And so in some ways, like Merck, Bouguet, and uh, Berguet are like three aspects of Birke mm-hmm. split into three people because there's the author who the story is being told to. And then there's like Merck here to give all of Birke's like spiritualism points of view. And there's Bouguet who's here to give all of the like psychoanalyst Freudian points of view. So you really need a good comedic actor with a lot of charisma to make um, Bernard Bouguet work as a character, um, which makes sense for why they chose like this national treasure actor to play him. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, he does a great job, especially that charisma. Mm-hmm. So you don't feel like you're getting tired of him or anything. Yeah, yeah. and his like clumsy, cowardly shtick, which could be tiresome in a less charismatic actor. And, you know, when we talked before the break about how um, Birke's spiritualism was sort of about like spirits in the world provide you like inspiration for what you do and they're your muses and they give you like your gut instincts. Um, it, it sort of like gets to the point where, you know, Kai is saying, Oh, Bjorn was inspired by Grovik's story to the point where he identified as Grovik and Merck is saying, well, no, he was possessed by Grovik's spirit. And once you kind of know a bit more about Birke's like beliefs on spirits, it sort of gets to the point where you're like, well, how are these two things actually different, different right? They're, they're not different um, in a practical matter. Mm-hmm. I do think it's funny. The most 1950s thing about this movie is that the like rational scientific explanation of what has happened um, involves twin telepathy as like a key element and it's like now sitting here in 2022 it's like this is the the rational explanation (laughs) is twin telepathy well i mean like it's a common um old wives tale you know it's it's It's, a common trope and the reason i say it's super 1950s is because i think the 50s was like sort of um one of the peaks in people like really wanting to believe that ESP was like a real scientific thing rather yeah. than like a supernatural thing. Yeah. But I don't know. I really like this movie. Um, kind of back to my point of, is this horror? Right. Uh, yes. 
psychological horror. <laughs> so the reason I brought up Hound of the Baskervilles yeah. um, in the first place was to compare the way that like Hound of the Baskervilles, you know, was coming from Hammer who were known for horror and it really upped the gothic flavor in the adaptation, but it didn't really up the horror. So it stayed a mystery and we, you know, covered it as a horror adjacent movie. Whereas this is, you know, basically the same kind of story. It's a mystery with spooky elements that turns out nothing supernatural happened. But it's quite clear that the intent in this movie is to establish this creepy atmosphere and spook the viewer. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I would agree that psychological horror is a really good descriptor of this movie. I see what you mean about it not being psychological thriller because it's not like edge of your seat. Yeah, well, I It doesn't always, have that Hitchcockian element. Yeah, Hitchcock. Um, I also think of <laughs> the Jennifer Lopez movie Enough. Sure. Um, which is absolutely a thriller because you're just like, holy shit, whoa. Ultimately, when it comes to like the whole exercise that this podcast is about, genre is both fake and very real. Yes, I <laughs> I love the dichotomy of that in this podcast. Yeah, it's like it's like, you know, genre is what you make of it and like it's a marketing term and it's it's things can be whatever they want to be. Yeah. But also I have very firm opinions on like, <laughs> well, if you did this, it's not horror. Absolutely. Um, I think the other thing that's really um supporting the conclusion of this movie is horror is like the way that the legend of Grovic lends the movie some folk horror qualities yeah that's true it it was interesting how you described that this is included in like that folk horror collection and stuff and watching it i was like i don't know if i would really call this folk horror because it's it's just a bunch of guys in the woods but then you bring in Tori and it's absolutely full core and that's actually one point i didn't mention they do some really cool special effects oh yeah the scene so so anytime that they're like reading a diary or someone's telling a story we get like flashbacks within flashbacks and yeah when the psychologist is like reading out um bjorn's diary of like he thought that he was possessed by Tori, like we see the ghost rise up from the lake and it's the double exposure for the ghost is so well done because like he'll be behind some trees and he'll be see-through, but the tr he'll clearly be behind the solid trees and he'll like reach around the trees. Like they manage three-dimensionalism mm -hmm. with the um, double exposure, which is extremely hard to do. And I don't think we've seen it done that well since like, I don't know, Phantom Carriage. I think so. Yeah. And then there's also a stop motion crow. Mm -hmm. which um is like less than five minutes on screen maybe like one to two minutes on screen um and it's done pretty well yeah it's it's really done well i think if you were someone who hadn't seen a lot of stop motion in your life you might not realize it's stop motion yeah you might think it's a real crow but i think if you've seen a lot of stop motion you'll have the eye to know it's stop motion um, the other thing that's folk horror about this is just sort of the general element of like a group of highly educated city folk. Cause that's the thing about all the people who come out. We have like an author, a psychoanalyst, a lawyer, um, a literary critic, like all of these people are highly educated. And so all these highly educated city folk come out into the woods in the countryside in a rural environment and confront something they don't 
understand. And I mm-hmm. think that's very folk horror as well. Yeah. And then in the context of the Rick Small and Book Mall and all of that discussion, right. I think there's probably something going on here, especially because they kept referencing literature and like famous Norwegian people like Henrik Ibsen, um, as well as like non-Norwegian people, um, yeah. like more English sounding names. And I, I wish I had the understanding of those pieces of literature to be able to be like, oh, they're mentioning um, it, there's like a title of a book called Inferno, but it's not Dante. Yeah, that's um, the thing. I, yeah. I know Dante's Inferno, but this was like Strindberg or something like that. Yeah. And so, yeah, if you if you listener know like stuff about Strindberg or Schindberg or something like that, uh, that his Inferno, like tell us about it because it clearly forms some sort of key subtext here. Yeah. I also wanted to mention with regards to, you know, we have this idea that if there's a supernatural explanation for the story, then Grovic is kind of the villain. And if there's a psychological explanation for the story, then like Bjorn is our villain. But in terms of how the movie is shot, like the cinematography and the editing, the overall sense that you kind of get watching the movie is that it's the lake that's evil. Yeah. Well, yes, it's evil. But it's not like it has agency. It's just like the aura of it infects people. Yeah, because, you know, even if we accept that, like, Bjorn was either mad or possessed, and therefore, like, the curse isn't, like, a thing, the lake isn't evil, that doesn't explain that when Bernard is by the lake one day, like gathering water. He's standing near it and he gets transfixed on it. And we see this like whirlpool in his mind drawing him closer to the lake. Well, that's a visual representation of the Tory legend, like how they describe like what happened to Tory. Because that's the thing. Tory was a real dude. He actually was there. It wasn't just like, oh yeah, a friend of a friend of mine. Yeah. Um, And he describes having dreams but the lake is calling him and pulling him under uh in these dreams mm-hmm. so yeah i think you're totally on the money there was there anything that you didn't particularly like so the female characters are unfortunately props basically mm. um i did like that sonia gets to do something um but otherwise she's kind of just there to make the food um and be a soundboard mm-hmm. for bernard um Lillian is there to be concerned and in danger, and we don't really hear from them. It's all the men talking about what they think the theory of the story is. Yeah, I would absolutely agree. Um, My only major problem with the movie is how sidelined Lillian is. I mean, it would be nice if Sonya had, like, more presence too, but, like... This should really be Lillian's story. Absolutely. Like she's the focal point character that everything else and every other character is revolving around, but we don't really get her POV. Um, and part of that is like we don't get access to those um, Lillian and Kai like psychoanalyst sessions because it's meant to be like, ah, my my trick secret weapon all along was that I, you know, did these things and that's supposed to be like held up at the end of the movie as a surprise. But I think like once again, 
in one of these cases where there's maybe some discussion to be had about is it horror or not, um, the horror would be stronger if you centered the woman. Yeah. And that comes up over and over again in these older movies. As it stands, I don't really hold it against the movie too bad how Lillian is sidelined until the final scene. Mm -hmm. Because this woman has lost her brother and her fiance in like a three-day stretch of time, all while going through this tremendously psychologically traumatizing uh, experience of her possibly possessed twin brother using his telepathy to make her dreams, make her want to kill herself. But the film gives us like no real hint of the effect this has on her, um, how she's doing, what she thinks of this, or even like what will become of her after this. And what I found particularly frustrating is that we see what we think is her sink into the depths in like a really um, haunting shot. We see her like white form fade into the blackness of the lake from mm-hmm. overhead. Um, and then we get like told that, oh, actually she's fine. Like she's just in the other room sleeping, but we don't get the catharsis of actually seeing her ever yeah. again in the movie. And I think that is the movie's biggest mistake that we don't get to like, see like here she is safe and sound. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I don't know if that's just the fact that this is a movie from 1958. I don't know if it's the fact that the novel itself is from 1940-ish. Two, yeah. 42. I think it is a real shame. But um, at least in this case, it doesn't, it would enhance the horror, but it's not like the horror isn't there. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. I think. Um, I think the thing is that like, they wanted to go out on this kind of like jokey moment of like, well, the supernatural doesn't really exist or, or it does, does it? it. And so that didn't really give them space to check in with Lillian, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, let's move on to ranking. Okay, Sarah. So I'm going to warn you, I'm looking a bit high. Okay. How high? Top 10 high. Okay. I would disagree with that. Okay. When I was looking at a range, um, I was really, for whatever reason, thinking a lot about Phantom Carriage. Not for whatever reason. We, we called out why you would think of Phantom Carriage. Sure. And Phantom Carriage uh, sits at number nine on the list currently. And I actually thought this might be a little bit better than Phantom Carriage because like, it really held my like attention and focus um phantom carriage is great but it also is like it's exhausting Mm -hmm. it is an exhausting time and i enjoyed this a lot more so i thought this might be better than phantom carriage um in fact i i looked at number 10 and i thought yeah i think this is definitely better than island of lost souls which is great but a little clunky at times um looking up from phantom carriage You know, the atmosphere in this movie puts it on par with stuff like I Walked With a Zombie and The Old Dark House. Um, The kind of like interplay between horror and non-horror elements reminds me of Spiral Staircase. Whether you like it better or worse than Horror of Dracula sort of depends on whether you like your horror loud or quiet. Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't think it's better than The Fly. 
Uh, I don't think it hits those kinds of heights of like body horror and stuff. So my range was the bottom half of the top 10 from five to 10. Where were you looking? So I really liked the atmosphere of this movie and it really reminded me of a movie from 1932, Vampire. Oh yeah. Also very atmospheric. Yeah. And that movie is really, really creepy. It really feels like a nightmarish world. The Lake of the Dead, it has that nightmarish feeling to it when you're seeing things from Bjorn's point of view. Mm. But otherwise, it's, you know, it's pretty straightforward. It has like the the mysteries, what secrets are going on, but it, it doesn't focus on like a nightmarish thing. And I think it would have been a little stronger if we had heard from Lillian yeah. and getting that nightmarish feeling from her. Oh yeah, totally. If I was to remake this movie, it would be like Lillian and Bjorn are the characters you want to see the world through. So I felt that vampire was better. Hmm. So that puts my ceiling at 47. Looking down, I called it at 58, uh, Frankenstein 1970. Because while that movie is pretty good and pretty, like, fun, thinking of, like, the atmosphere, it's definitely much more haunting in Lake of the Dead. Yeah, the craft level in Lake of the Dead is, frankly, higher than in Frankenstein 1970. So there's a movie that I want to call our attention to in this range between 47 and 58, and that is number 50, Valkoinen Pura, The White Reindeer. Yeah, our other, like scandinavian folk horror movie yes that movie has the atmosphere it has solid horror it has focus on the female character Mm -hmm. um and it has that complexity of what is going on here you know our our uh, protagonist being the horrific character and i felt that white reindeer is probably better right below that is the screaming skull so i was feeling like this is kind of my range but Within this range, my spot would be to replace The Screaming Skull at number 51. All right. I totally see where you're going. Um, Just for fun, I want to look in the middle of our ranges, which puts us at 28. Uh, So the three-movie span kind of there is um, The Wolfman at 27, Thing from Another World at 28, Invasion of the Body Snatchers at 29. But where I want to draw your attention at 26 is a movie with a kind of very similar atmosphere to this, Fairman Maria. So what's tough is a lot of these movies here have that cultural significance mm. that really draws us in, particularly Fairman Maria mm-hmm. with the SS officer. I think, I think there's something like that here, but it's around language and the rural and urban divide. And we're missing it. We're missing it. Yeah. Um, and I also think that like absolutely worthwhile to address and discuss the rural and urban divide. Is it as culturally powerful as an SS officer being death? Right. Yeah. No, totally. Um, I also think that there's other folk horror movies that hit that question way better. But like, you know, we got to give some weight to the fact that like, That shot of her going into the lake is apparently like the most iconic shot in Norwegian film. And this is like the fourth best Norwegian film of all time and stuff. So there's clearly like something culturally significant here Mm -hmm. that we're not latching onto. But I totally agree with what you're saying on every level about the cultural significance. 
and I, I get what you're saying about Vampyr. I get what you're saying about White Reindeer. But what do you think about below Invasion of the Body Snatchers, but above Fiend Without a Face, which is the stop-motion brains movie? Yeah, that's another question of, do you like your horror loud or quiet? Because mm-hmm. Fiend Without a Face would definitely be loud. Mm-hmm. I don't recall Fiend Without a Face having that cultural significance. No, it was no, just, it was just like, really fun. Really fun, really in your face holy moly yeah it's honestly it's the spot on the list where that shifts right because then below that we have stuff like x the unknown and return of the vampire no you know what i i think this is a pretty good spot let's do that okay cool so coming in the list at the new number 30 is dedition or lake of the dead from 1958 directed by corey bergstrom If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, ScreamScenePodcast.com. There you can find links to the many episodes we have mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our Ask box on Tumblr. You can reach out over email at ScreamScenePodcast at gmail.com or chat with us on Twitter at underscore ScreamScene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can share the show with your friends to help us out with growing our audience. You can subscribe to our RSS feed to make sure you never miss an episode. And you can uh, rate the show or review the show on your podcasting app of choice to help us get featured by that app's algorithms. If you have the financial means, we also really appreciate your support over on Patreon. Patreon.com slash scream scene podcast where you can sign up to become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month your patronage helps us pay the bills helps us um take the time to do these episodes uh which you know we really like being able to do a good job on these and it takes a lot of time to put them together and if you are a patron of the five or ten dollar level you get access to regular bonus content and if you And if you are a patron of any level, you get to participate in our monthly horror-adjacent bonus episodes. Uh, I believe July's theme is Houses. Houses. And uh, our June episode was on Hound of the Baskervilles, which we talked about in this episode and will be out sometime around here uh, soon. So watch our social media feeds for that. Uh, and yeah, if you want to support us, patreon.com slash scream scene podcast. So what are we watching next week, Ben? Next week, Sarah, we are just sort of switching it up entirely. (laughs) We are going back in time, uh, by quite a lot. Uh, we are circling back to cover a movie that I don't think is horror, but a (laughs) lot of people sure do. And one of our listeners sure did and requested that we cover it. And it's a movie that I want to watch with you anyway. So I decided that watching it on the show would be a good excuse to finally watch it with you. And that is F.W. Murnau's adaptation of Faust from 1926, an old German expressionist silent film. Cool. Uh, shout out to David Healy, who is the Creature of the Night, who submitted that. Thanks, David. Cool. Well, yeah, we will see you then, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye.